So we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. The kingdom of heaven is at hand is the message. We're going to tackle verses 7 through 23. And we're, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of the word of God. Matthew 10, 7. In case you're new to us, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus addressing the 12, Matthew 10, 7 says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's our title. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, 15, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles." But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. It is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and father a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for this word. We know that your word is alive and powerful. And as we continue to explore the kingdom of God, what does it mean what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Who's part of it? What does it mean to us to live for the king and the kingdom? We're going to explore some of those things, and we're going to look at a verse in 1023 that we just read that we need understanding, Lord, about what it means when you said you won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. What does that mean, and to whom were you speaking? So, Lord, we need our thinking caps today. We need the help of your Holy Spirit we know that each time we open these doors, we want to see people experience the kingdom of God. We know you're here. We know the kingdom is near to us. Even if uh, we're not a believer yet, we're here experiencing the, the truth of the kingdom and even the power of the kingdom. So help those who don't know you yet to know that they can enter through Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, for all of those who are already citizens of the kingdom, may you give us further understanding about both our mission and understanding about the kingdom of God and how we're even to understand 
what you said in verse 23. So give us your help. We know that you will. And we lay this time at your feet and we pray that our response to you would be pleasing. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So uh, look back a little bit and you're gonna, we're gonna turn in our Bibles quite a bit today, but look back in the immediate context of verse five. Jesus has chosen the 12. We have their names last time we were together. And Jesus sent out, uh, sent them out after instructing them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles or non-Jews. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven, uh, I believe this is an inter interchangeable title with the kingdom of God. You can write down Mark 1.15 is at hand, or if you have an NIV, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, before we define the kingdom of heaven one more time, I want you to see that this is what John the Baptist preached, and it's what Jesus preached. If you look back for a moment, just turn back to chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 2. John the Baptist was that voice crying in the wilderness. And here's what John said. Repent, Matthew 3, 2. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can see that is at hand is a phrase repeated. Turn over to 4, 17. Jesus, the same thing. From that time, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then flipping all the way to our current passage, chapter 10, the instruction of what the disciples or apostles are gonna preach as you go, 10-7, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, repentance would be implied there. And I think in another gospel, it says they preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you see the theme come up over and over again? And you might have questions about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. What is it? And how are we to understand it in terms of our own lives? Let me read a little paragraph of my notes. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the rule or kingship of God over those in his kingdom, i.e. citizens. They live under his rule, following his ways. The citizens of the kingdom have both privileges and responsibilities. The kingdom of God is not so much about geography as it is about community. A community that shares the same Lord wherever they may be, whether it's in the U.S., Iran, China, and the same allegiances. Jesus is the king, and thus his lead is what his citizens follow. It's his wisdom that we seek. It's his heart that we desire to live. No matter where the, the citizens of the kingdom may be, we experience the freedom of the kingdom. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, at the time that Jesus is walking the earth, Roman occupation is happening over Israel. That is, Israel is under the domination of Rome. Yet Jesus preaches freedom for those who belong to the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? If you think about the lost sheep of Israel and think about the immediate audience in this context, God chose Israel as that covenant nation. He basically essentially married them at Mount Sinai. There was a a covenant, a marriage contract, if you will, what we would know as a ketubah. 
and responsibilities of the citizens, etc. And basically God said, I'll be your king. Pharaoh's not your king, I'm your king. And Moses led them out. And God wanted to be king over the nation. And that nation was the keeper of the word of God. Of course, copying the Hebrew scriptures. And the messianic line would come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc. Much of which we already know. And at one point in Israel's history, there's a critical moment where the nation begins to ask for a king. They say, we want a king like all other nations have kings. And Samuel, the prophet, is brokenhearted over this. And he's troubled. And God says to the prophet, don't you worry about it, paraphrasing. They haven't rejected you from being king. They've rejected me from being king over them. Give them what they want. And they got a king named Saul. And Saul, his name literally means asked for. They got what they asked for. Be careful what you ask for. Now, Saul looked good. He was taller than everybody else, head and shoulders above the rest. He looked like a leader. He was handsome. But Saul blew it. Saul would not follow the lead of the ultimate king, and he got replaced by someone better than him, namely a man named David. And David was a man after God's own heart. He would represent the king and the kingdom in a correct way. Now, no, not a perfect way. We know David made his mistakes, but we talked about last Sunday how David cast a shadow all the way to the greater David, that is, the Messiah. And now, in Israel's history, think about where we are, the Messiah or the king has arrived. He's come to the nation. The nation rejected the kingship of God. And remember what happened. As king of, after king uh, was instituted, whether in the north or the south, very few kings ever arrived on the landscape, right? Every king in the north was wicked. They had a few good kings in the south. And the kings led them astray, and the only kings that were good were the kings that called the nation to repentance and would knock down the high places to the false gods and reinstitute commitment to Yahweh. That was a good king. But they were very few and far between because men, when they get roles of leadership, have feet of clay. And many compromise. Even Solomon compromised with his many foreign wives. And so the nation wouldn't listen. The prophets came and finally 400 years of silence from the book of Malachi in the Italian Malachi to the book of Matthew. And all these prophecies now are pointing to the arrival of the king. One thing that I want to show you just if you look ahead to Matthew 21, Jesus is riding in in the triumphal entry. Matthew 21, take a, take a look with me. And the people are quoting from Zechariah chapter 9. And look what they say. Say, Matthew 21, 5, to the daughter of Zion. That's the people of Israel. Behold, what's your Bible say? Your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you're taking notes, a parallel in John 12, 15 puts it this way. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt, John 12, 15. What's Passion Week about? The week that Jesus was gonna die. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10. The king has come on a saving mission. 
And when the people saw him riding in on the colt, they took palm branches, which were symbols of their patriotism and nationalism. Now here we are, we're on the verge of a 4th of July holiday in the United States. We're a, a nation founded on biblical principles, yes, with imperfect men, but an undoubted commitment to the God of the scriptures and the scriptures themselves. And we celebrate an Independence Day from tyranny. Do you know that the 4th of July is a celebration of freedom of worship? When the founders came over here, they did not want a state-run church dictating to them how they could worship God. This nation was founded with the hope of freedom of worship, despite all the revisionistic history that you hear. And so when you celebrate and you have a barbecue on Tuesday, I hope you will remember that as imperfect as the founders may have been, they had a commitment to the God of the Bible and the Word of God. Amen. And this nation has moved far away from that. Now, I want to draw the parallel with Israel. We're not Israel. We're, we live in contemporary America. But here's the point. Israel had abandoned their underpinnings, their foundation, their king. And now the actual king has come from heaven to come on a saving mission. And they're waving palm branches, uh, which are symbols of patriotism in that day. But did they understand his mission? Look, there's your king. Behold, here he comes. But when he looked at the city, he cried over it. And he said, if you only knew the day of your visitation, the king has come to visit you, and yet you didn't understand. And now these things are hidden from your eyes. And famously, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. That is, you, if you put your trust in that building, that temple where all those sacrifices occur, and you don't have me, the king, at the center of it, there, it's, there's nothing. And desolate is actually a word that would happen. They would experience a total desolation of that holy place because it had largely abandoned the king. So, Jesus had come to save his people from their sins. They largely did not recognize his visitation. This is early on. This is, you know, uh, not so far into Jesus' ministry now. And this original preaching tour, you could call it house to house, uh, city to city evangelism, Jesus says, I want you to go, back in chapter 10, verse 6, go to the lost sheep of the nation. Go to the house of Israel and preach and say to them, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does that mean, it's at hand? In order to understand the phrase, which I think is important, I want you to turn to two scriptures in Matthew. 26, 18, all the way towards the end of Matthew. If We'll try to put verses up as we can here. 26, 18, I just want you to see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and see it used in two other places in Matthew. The Greek word is engizo, it's A-G-G, I'm sorry, E-G-G-I-Z-O, but here's the important part. Look at Matthew 26, 18. Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is what? At hand. That's the same Greek word. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Look ahead in the same chapter, verse 45. Jesus came to the disciples, 26, 45, said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. Same Greek word. 
The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up or arrived, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs, etc. Back to Matthew chapter 10. Here's something I want you to see. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was at hand for the Jewish nation. It was near. Jesus said in another scripture, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom was brought near in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question would be, what would the nation do with the actual arrival of the king? Now, Jesus has been preaching. He preaches manifesto in Matthew 5 through 7. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. He's been doing all these incredible miracles. And now he's going to multiply the laborers to get the message out to the lost sheep or the lost nation. And he sends the 12 out. Many hands make light work. So he knows that the efforts can be in many ways duplicated if they go out. So he's giving them instructions. And he says, I want you to preach. The kingdom is at hand. Here's just a a couple other parallel verses. Romans 13, 12 says, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. James 5, 8 says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James 5, 8. And then finally, 1 Peter 4, 7, if you're taking notes, the end of all things is at hand. Same Greek word. Therefore be of sound judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. So the disciples are to go out. They're to go door to door. I remember uh, some years back, Paul Hicks, for those of you who know Paul, we affectionately call him the woo-hooer. He likes to say, woo-hoo! Anyway, so we went behind the church, the old location, and we were going door to door. And there was a house like right behind the back wall of the church, the parking lot. And we come to this door. It's the first door we're going to, and we're going to do door to door. And we prayed, and we got ourselves prepared and ring the bell and Paul's kind of taking the lead and the guy opens the door. He goes, hi, uh, uh, I'm Paul Hicks from Living Truth. Nice to meet you, sir. And the guy turned on us. He went, I know where your church is. And if I want to go to your church, I'll come to you. You don't need to come to me. I'll come to you. (laughs) And sometimes you don't know how to quite respond to that, you know? Everybody tells you, don't worry, most Americans are totally open if you invite them to church. Yeah, right. That's the first door. Guy was breathing fire. <laughs> and Paul, only a response that could be Holy Spirit-led, said, well, well, God bless you, sir, and we'll hope to see you one day. He put his hand. The guy wouldn't even shake his hand. Poor brother Paul. And you know what we did? We did this. Hold on, sir. We're just going to do a biblical thing. No, we didn't do that. (laughs) Although Jesus said we could shake the dust off your feet. I don't recommend that, especially for people who are real sensitive about their carpets and, you know, anyway. All right, you say, so what does the mission look like? Here's what he says. 10.8, heal the sick, raise the dead. These are all things Jesus has done in the previous chapters. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Now, there's all kinds of debates about 
charismatic gifts and are they for today and to what extent can we apply scriptures like this to our lives? Let me just say this. Jesus knew that if the apostles could do these miracles, it would be confirmation that the kingdom of God had arrived. Not everybody had a personal encounter with Jesus. He was localized in a human body. Therefore, he's basically saying, look, I'm gonna give you this authority and power so that you'll get people's attention. But it's more than that. I think it's, it's compassion. And I wanna give you just an application. When, when people meet citizens of the kingdom like us, wherever we may be, uh, at work, in our neighborhood, etc. The kingdom comes near to people. And we want to operate in compassion. And certainly we believe we could pray for people and the Lord might do a miracle. But in this particular context, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you this power and authority to essentially do what I've been doing so people will know you represent me as ambassadors. And you'll have their attention. And yes, it's driven by compassion. We, we always want to have the Lord's heart. But it'll also be a sign to them that the kingdom is here. Freely you've received, look at the end of verse eight, freely give. Here's another sign of the kingdom. Don't you charge people. This is why I believe it is very wise for Christian churches to distance themselves as much as possible from the manipulation of the world or so-called professing Christian churches in terms of money. Now, when we get to passages about giving, we teach them. But there's too much emphasis and too much manipulation going on about money in the professing church. And we've, we've received freely and we give freely. Here's my point. The gospel is free. In the first century, philosophers went around, went around on itinerant ministries and they would charge people for their philosophies. You want me to teach you? Here's how much my course costs. Today we have pastors who often manipulate people and use scriptures, I would argue, out of context to put people under unnecessary burdens. But at the same time, I'll say that Jesus will say a workman's worthy of his wages, and it's certainly right to give to the kingdom of God. I hope you're a kingdom builder, and I hope you build the kingdom with your finances. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, you receive this freely. I chose you. I saved you. I called you. We don't want anybody to be confused about the gospel. The gospel is free. We're saved by grace through faith as a gift of God. We grab the life preserver. Jesus throws it to us. You grab it by faith, and that's how you get saved. Mark 6, 12, 13 puts it this way. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So we can see that they were casting out demons. The demons were subject to them. They were healing. But we don't have a record, if you look back at verse 8 just for a second, of the cleansing of a leper that I know of or the raising of the dead by the apostles. This is why if you read some study Bibles, they will say that either Matthew has combined a couple of discourses by Jesus in this section or that he's using a telescopic method. What does that mean? That simply means that in some uh, segments of the discourse, he's projecting to future events outside of this immediate preaching tour of the 12. For example, Peter prayed for someone and she was raised. Dorcas is her name. And then Paul prayed for Eutychus in the book of Acts and he was raised from the dead. 
This did happen by the hands of Peter and Paul later. And this is why some people say Jesus may be forecasting this out to like events in the book of Acts, which certainly we could make a case for. So those are some things that we don't see in the immediate setting, but the apostles were able to do these signs. They were able to touch people with the power of the kingdom. They were able to uh, do it freely. Jesus says, don't acquire gold, nine, or silver, or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, no extra suitcases, only check-in luggage. That's a loose translation. Or even two tunics, don't take an extra jacket, if you will, or sandals, or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. Now you say, well, does that contradict what Jesus just said? No, because here's the thing. You're not to ask and you're not to charge, but people who belong to the Lord will recognize the need to support those who give their lives in gospel work. Here's how uh, Paul put it. If you're taking notes, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. I think most uh, scholars would say that's remuneration or pay or support, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, quote from the Old Testament, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, quote from Jesus in Luke 10, 7. So the point is this, and let me just, I'll just make a, a contemporary comment. You have, you have a person who, let's just say, is a teacher. Let's say they're a gifted teacher. They've written a book or two or whatever, and they're in demand and they go, they're asked to go preach somewhere. Well, today, you wouldn't believe what some people charge to show up at a church and teach. I mean, they have minimum amounts. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I would say, well, if they're making their living by it, maybe that's what you gotta do because you go to a place, you travel, you, would, you have some minimum expectations. But I also think that if someone asked me to speak at a place, I could just go and trust that the Lord would take care of me. In other words, I get a little concerned about sometimes these minimum amounts that are being charged by people who go on speaking tours. Yet at the same time, I want to be gracious and say, you know, perhaps they've been burned or whatever. He says, whatever city or village 11 you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. That would be someone who's of noble character, someone who fears the, the Lord and is open to the kingdom and abide there until you go away. So, Find a place you can stay, and as you enter that house, give it your greeting. You're going to see it's a greeting of shalom, the standard Jewish way of saying blessing. When you go into a household, greet it. New King James might be something like this. We come on behalf of the king of peace. We're preaching the kingdom of God. If the house is worthy, 13, let your greeting of shalom, something like a blessing, which is, was really strong in that culture. When you uh, wish someone shalom, it's much more than significant than just saying peace, bro, or something like that. It was, may you be blessed from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. May your household be blessed. May your family be blessed. It was, it was definitely like a blessing greeting. And he says, give that blessing, but if it's not worthy, end of 13, let your greeting of peace return to you, okay? If they don't want it, don't cast your pearls before swine. I don't want the Lord's peace in here. Okay, <laughs> I'll take it back. No shalom for you. You don't want shalom? You don't get shalom. More for me. Amen? 
I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Let it return to you. Don't worry about it. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house, and I've already demonstrated what this looks like, or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now, shaking off the dust of your feet was kind of like a protest in the Jewish world. Like, not even your dirt is worthy to be on my sandals kind of thing. And in the book of Acts, this is something to write down for your notes. Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And they go to the Jews first and they say these words, Acts 13, 46, and then I'm going to read 51. Since you repudiate or push away the gospel of the kingdom and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now this is Acts 13, 51. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So basically Jesus says, look, look for those who are open. If they're not open, they don't want to hear about the terms of peace with the king. We have peace with, our, uh, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear that. You have people in your life and they're completely closed. How hard do you push? What do you do? Well, you might say to someone, okay, if you don't want to understand terms of peace with God, then I'll pray for you. Or if you ever want to talk about it, I'm available to you. So you got to try to use discernment and God's wisdom. But look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, in the day of judgment, than for that city. Now what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it rained fire and brimstone. And those cities were burned to the ground. And Jesus says, they'll have less of a judgment than the city who rejects you. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near. The king is here. What more do you need? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. You know, do the work. And if they reject it, why would they reject it? Why does anybody in the atmosphere of the power of the kingdom, say no to the king. Yet they're everywhere. They're in Israel today. They're in other countries today. And they're in America. How blessed have we been with radio ministries and Bibles and uh, churches on every corner. But oh, America, where are we now? The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus says, look, Judgment is coming. Now, he's, he gives them an insight. If you flip over to Matthew 23, Matthew 23, I don't know if this is what we should say. You go to someone, they say, no, thank you. I don't want to hear anything about that Jesus. And you say, well, are you familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> should you say that? Ooh, I don't know. Turn or burn, baby! Get yourself one of those sandwich board things. <laughs> Look at Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus right before he gives us the uh, Olivet Discourse. Jerusalem, Jerusalem 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, turn to Luke 19. I want to show you Luke recording the same uh, week. And this is a prophecy that Jesus gives beginning in Luke 19, 41. He approaches Jerusalem and he cries over the city. He saw the city and he wept over it. Luke 19, 42. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, remember the greetings of peace, go to that house, offer them peace if they reject it, etc. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Hold your place in Luke just for a second. Jesus looks at the city. Everybody's celebrating the arrival of the king. But what did he see? A city that did not understand the mission, did not understand his, his coming and what he had come to do. A, a nation that was largely unrepentant. And Jesus made a prediction. Very important that you see this. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which happened within a generation of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, most scholars say Jesus ministered between 30 and 33 A.D. Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. And Josephus, the Jewish historian that somehow got connected to the Romans, said that not only was there not one stone left upon another of the temple complex, but people who walk, walked through their, that area decades after said the area looked as if there had never been a temple there in the first place. It was completely desolate. This is one reason you should know that Jesus is who he said he was and the Bible is divine. Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem in detail before 40 years or so before it happened. And he even predicted that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. And literally, the Romans, in order to get the gold between the stones of the temple, completely demolished it for the sake of grabbing the, the lucrative value of the gold. Now, one other place in Luke, turn to Luke 10. Jesus has sent out the 70. This is a separate preaching mission. But he says... Luke 10, just for the sake of time, look at verse 11. Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet. So let's say they don't receive it. We wipe off and protest against you, Luke 10, 11. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in, the day of, uh, in that day for Sodom than for that city. And then Jesus begins to pronounce woes on certain cities where many of his miracles were done, specifically Capernaum is mentioned in verse 15, back to Matthew 10. So the disciples go out, and they're preaching, and Jesus says, look, you're representing me, the king, you're my ambassadors, I'm going to give you the power, the authority, and I'm going to send you out. And you're going to go out, Matthew 10, 16, 
I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd. The word shrewd is probably best rendered cunning like a serpent. Serpent knows how to hide itself, how to be sleek, avoid danger, that kind of thing. Be shrewd as serpents, combination of wisdom and intelligence, and innocent or harmless or unmixed as doves. Be a combination. They said of uh, Abraham Lincoln, he was a combination of velvet and steel. Be wise. Don't put yourself in unnecessary danger, but also be soft and understand where you've come from. Have both discernment and compassion. Ray Comfort, uh, the great evangelist who's down in Huntington Beach evangelizing every weekend, says his favorite Bible verse is Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. <laughs> Amen? No, no need to take unnecessary abuse. Even Jesus told the 12, look, if they're not open, shake the dust off, shake it off. We might say, you know, to a little leaguer, you get hit by a pitch, shake it off. Your assistant coach says it won't hurt much. You tell the kid, oh, it's going to hurt. <laughs> yeah. You ever seen the little kids, you know, the pitches come in? <laughs> anyway, the idea is, look, this is about rejection of the king and the kingdom, so don't Take it over personally. Shake it off. Move on. Be shrewd. Be even cunning, but be gentle. Say to people, look, we, we as believers, we bring no harm. We, we bring a gospel of peace. But beware, Matthew 10, 17, of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Even though I think Jesus forecasts the... Uh, some things that happened in the book of Acts, it's hard to deny that um, this happened to the apostles. Notice, beware of men, they will deliver you. The you is the 12, but maybe going out to the apostle Paul and others. Remember, Peter and John are in the San, court of the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 and 5. Uh, in Acts 24 through 26, if you go re and read those chapters, Paul appears before Felix the governor and before King Agrippa, in a court setting, there's even an attorney for the other side. And Paul's got to make an argument in a court setting with his life literally on the line. Notice the mention of synagogues. They will scourge you in the synagogues. We know how many times uh, Paul went through beatings with his missionary partners, etc. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake. We think of the, uh, the apostle Paul, but... Um, Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate. So he's saying, look, you're going you're gonna to have an opportunity to give a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, whether they're Jewish leadership or Gentile leaders. But when they deliver you up, don't become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. Now, if you're in a crisis situation, Jesus says they throw you in a prison and they say, you're going to appear before. Some people believe that Paul even appeared before the emperor of Rome. You would imagine you want to kind of plan your speech a little bit. Okay, point A, point B, point C. I'm talking to the governor. I'm talking to the emperor, right? But Jesus says, don't do that. Now, this is not an excuse for pastors not to prepare sermons, some pastors have taken it this way. Oh, it'll be given to me in that hour what I'm supposed to say. I don't need to study. I'm just going to show up and I'm going to ask the Lord for the message in the front row while the worship team plays. 
So a story about a pastor. He's on the front row. And he tells the worship team, play another song. I don't have it. Play another song. I don't have it. Well, by the time they played 15 songs, it's been pretty much like a music <laughs> worship service. So the pastor's now desperate. And he says, Lord, please give it to me. What am I to say? And the Lord speaks to him and says, go up to the pulpit and tell them you didn't study. <laughs> that you're not prepared. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. This verse is not about not studying. Pastors need to be prepared to teach the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 is in a pastoral letter. Uh, the job description of a pastor has been defined we don't redefine it. It's been defined. Amen? Preach the word. Give yourself to the public reading of scripture. Shepherd the flock. Exhort the people. Joel Osteen, I'm just a smiling encourager. <laughs> well, Joel is a, he seems like a nice guy. Seems like a guy that would be fun to play around a golf or something. But Joel, your job's been defined for you. You can't redefine your job. Now, if you want to be a motivational speaker, then don't call yourself a pastor. How dare you, someone might say. Look, I'm just telling you that the Bible defines the job description. So if we're going to take it seriously, then we're going to say this is the job description and we can't redefine it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to be harsh. Maybe a little. <laughs> now notice, wouldn't it be good if we all... We're so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that we would know, look at the end of 19, how or what we will speak. I have a friend who says he often prays, Lord, help me to know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and when to be quiet. <laughs> Amen? If you offer this little part of you on the altar each and every day, you'll avoid a lot of mistakes. Amen? You say, well, no one can tame the tongue. Well, yeah, God can. You might not be able to, but God can tame your tongue. Amen? So, Lord, help me to know how to say things. You know, not like, sorry. Yeah, that's believable. <laughs> Apologize to your brother. Sorry. Anyway. So we can see the gracious uh, empowering of the Lord in the life of Stephen, Paul, and so many others. Wisdom and power and authority. No one could even answer them. Don't be nervous about what you're going to speak. It's, the, it's not you who speak, 20. It's the spirit of your father who speaks in you. I can tell you, Quoting R. Kent Hughes as a pastor, there's times in a sermon where my pace and the insights that flow from heaven are not me. And I feel like I'm flying with wings like eagles. And sometimes I'll go back and listen to a message I gave and I'm like, who's that? That was pretty good. <laughs> there's just a supernatural mystery about preaching. And I'm not saying God doesn't use our personalities because he obviously does. But here's my point. There's the resources of heaven to do what we've been called to do. Amen? And that's beautiful. And now some final verses and they get really hard. 
and brother will deliver up brother to death. The way the language uh, in the original reads, it's probably capital execution. A father, his child, a children will rise up against parents and cause them, notice, to be put to death. Now, many of us, because of our backgrounds, we are quick to want to uh, fast forward this to a future end time scenario. And things probably in our world prior to the return of Christ are going to get ugly. I'm not going to say probably. They're going to get ugly. Because it's going to be a Christ-rejecting world and judgment day is going to come. But in the immediate setting here, it's probably specifically referring to the uh, martyrdom of the apostles and those of this group. And if you've ever read anything on the early church in terms of martyrdom, uh, most sources say 11 of the 12 were killed, either beheaded or burned or something like that. It was, you know, Jesus's own 12 were not spared a terrible death. Only John the apostle, from what I've read, uh, was not killed, although they tried to kill him from some uh, church tradition that is available to us. You say, well, why this reaction and what's going on here? Well, Jesus says, you will be hated by all. This, uh, for all you note takers, write down Matthew 24, 13. It's repeated almost verbatim in the Olivet Discourse, kind of Jesus's uh, sermon about the fall of Jerusalem in the last days. I think it's a near far sermon. You will be hated by all on account of my name. Uh, Matthew 24, 13 actually says all nations on account of my name. Whose name? The name of Jesus. Have you noticed the name of Jesus is a bit polarizing? Have you noticed how you can talk about God in a, you know, just a generic sense, but bring up the name Jesus and especially say to someone, he's the only way. Woo-wee, get ready. You'll be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end. The question is the end of what? who will be saved, Greek word sozo, could be physical deliverance, but largely uh, used for spiritual salvation. It's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Now, everybody's paying attention because we all want to know what in the world does that mean? Now, probably many of us have a theology that we've worked out about eternal security or the lack thereof. Once saved, always saved. Can you lose your salvation? Uh, what is Jesus saying here? Is it endurance through a difficult time or is it someone taking a stand all the way throughout their life no matter what they face? Here's Spurgeon, who probably says it better than I could. Happy are those who can bear persecution and hold on and hold out even to the end of the trial, the close of life, or the termination of the dispensation. Such shall be saved indeed. But those who can be overcome by opposition are lost, close quote. Now, let me use a contemporary illustration for you guys. The church went through an unprecedented time, at least for us, in the season of COVID, right? And at first, none of us knew what we were dealing with. And so churches probably, you know, I would say wisely shut down until we knew what was going on. But once we kind of saw through what was going on, it, it was crystal clear who needed to be protected and that the doors of the church need to be open. 
and a thousand churches in California open on Pentecost Sunday, 2020. But I will say this, as I looked around the landscape, what was missing was backbone. There was very little backbone. And the church cowered to a large degree and tried to hang their hat on certain scriptures, which I think they, in some cases, took out of context. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying, think about what COVID was. And it was a scary first couple of months, of course. And some of you may have lost loved ones, so I'm not trying to be callous here. All I'm saying is this. Measure how the church did with that and now take a scenario where people are being killed for saying that they're Christians, where family members are turning others to die. In, in the Muslim world, if you become a Christian, some households will literally kill you. We have uh, records of this happening. And then in some Jewish settings, at least historically, they would have a mock funeral and say you were dead to them because you decided to convert to Christianity, so you're dead to us. It's as though, as though you're dead. Well, Jesus says here, this isn't metaphor. This is going to be reality. So whenever they persecute you, final verse, in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, I told you that Jesus has forecasted some things uh, into future settings, like in the book of Acts. And futurists who see every time the coming of the Lord is mentioned want to forecast that, this into the future. Let me just say this to you. I, I, this is an area where we can debate within the church. But I don't think this is a future reference. And none other than a skeptic atheist called Bertrand Russell said he thought Jesus had moral, high moral character. Uh, he, he respected him as a nobleman. But he says he got things wrong in the New Testament. You say, Bertrand, what did he get wrong? He lived like in the 1800s. He got wrong his coming. He said he was coming back and before the cities of Israel were witnessed to. And his audience is obviously the apostles. He was wrong. He can't be God. He can't be who he said he was. That's what Bertrand Russell said. And I will say to you that if, if your lens is quickly to just say, oh, uh, this has got to be a last day scenario, and, and certainly the, the current circumstances could allow for that because Israel is back in the land now. And so we could say, well, it's always, it's possible, but it wouldn't be a possible interpretation before 1948 <laughs> or 1967 when Israel recaptured Jerusalem. So for 1900 years, there's no way you could see this as a future situation. Now, people like Warren Wiersbe sees this as future. And I have high respect for Warren Wiersbe, who's now with the Lord. So I just want to say to you, this is one way to see it. See the word comes there. We're going to get a little technical just for a moment. I know you can handle it. See the phrase, until the Son of Man comes. The word comes there is erikomai in Greek. It's E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, erikomai. It is not the technical word parousia used for the ultimate second coming appearances of the Lord. It's a word that's a more common word for comes. And some people have taken this option. 
Uh, you won't finish going through the cities of Israel before the Lord comes and I'll just come walking up. <laughs> before the Son of Man comes. You're like, ah, that seems a little weak. But look, look at the phrase until the Son of Man comes and remember it's anchored in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. We're going to put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. I'm going to read it to you. The phrase title Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let's see what it says. I kept looking, Daniel 7, 13, in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Some sort of like installation or in, uh, celebration of his office, if you will, or kingship. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, in the prophecy of the Son of Man, a title that Jesus uses in the gospel, Daniel shows us a prophecy, but the prophecy does not say that the Son of Man returns to the earth there's nothing here about returning to the earth. Where does he go? He goes before God the Father, and he's given a kingdom. And there are some scholars like R.T. France, who's written the New uh, International Commentary on the New Testament, uh, uh, an amazing scholar, who said that this is an example of a passage where Jesus is being installed somehow in heaven and giving power and authority over his enemies without it necessitating a second coming understanding. He sees this in phases. For example, some scholars, if you read on this enough, will say they believe this was realized at the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord as he goes to be at the right hand of God the Father and is installed as the King of Kings and therefore his enemies will suffer judgment. You say, well, it says, but until the Son of Man comes, they won't finish going through the cities of Israel. So what could it be? There's a third option. And the third option, I think, has a lot of merit. And here's what it is. The coming in this context is the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus is speaking to the apostles in the immediate setting of that generation. And here's how this works. There were day of the Lord judgments in the Old Testament that foreshadow or are in embryo a future day of the Lord. Stick with me, but here's how it works. When Israel was up to no good, in the north or the south, etc., God used Assyria and the armies of Assyria, and he came in judgment through that army. He used the armies of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and came in judgment to the south, to Judah. In other words, God can judge a nation through a foreign army, and it's still the coming of a judgment of God. Now, don't get nervous. There will be an ultimate second coming where Jesus will appear and every eye will see him. There's no doubt about that. But here, Jesus is most likely talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Now think with me. You won't finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Here's what happened. When Jerusalem fell to the Roman armies in AD 70, it was a judgment of God. Jesus predicted the judgment of AD 70, as we have already read. And judgment fell. And when Jerusalem was judged, the Jews were deported from all, to all these foreign lands. 
It was no longer possible to evangelize the cities of Israel because Jerusalem, and for that matter, the Jewish nation, essentially went out of existence. Are you with me? So the immediate setting seems to be, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I, I don't really think it's that big of a deal either way in terms of your overall view of the scriptures and eschatology. But you can see how Bertrand Russell and others cast doubt on Jesus because of a future understanding of this. I think Jesus is most likely saying, this is going to be the judgment of Jerusalem. I'm predicting it. And you won't even evangelize all the cities of Israel until this happens, and then it's going to be impossible to continue that work. Now, we're about to partake of communion, but I want to just make one other final statement in this sermon. We live in America, and we're in 2023. And when I look at nations around the world, and I look at it through a biblical lens, no nation is who confesses itself to have Christian foundations is preserved from judgment. And in 1776, we kind of made a declaration of who we were and what we stand for. And we have moved far away from that. And I often pray for our nation. I, I cry, I ask for her by name. And I would just say to you, let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the church in the nation that we would return to God, that we would hear the message of the kingdom for our day, that we would repent and return to the Lord that we might find times of refreshing and another great awakening in America. It's happened before. A Jesus revolution did happen late 60s, early 70s. It can happen again, amen? amen. We have hope. We have a great remnant in this nation. Let's keep fighting the good fight. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. I know we covered a lot of ground and some of it was technical, but thank you for your people being hungry to dive into the word of God. Each time we take of the Lord's Supper, we anticipate your second coming. We celebrate what you did at the first coming. Your precious blood shed for us, your body pierced for us, your triumphant resurrection. And I pray that as we partake of this supper, Lord, that you instituted, we will remember and we will look forward to your return. And we will know right now you are the king, seated on the throne, sovereign and ultimately in control of all things. And we thank you for that. If you're not a Christian and you're a lost sheep, maybe you would say, you know, somewhere back in the day I made a profession, but I've been lost. I don't know if I could stand at work, let alone in a scenario like this. Why don't you come back to the Lord, return to the king and the kingdom. He is so gracious. He'll forgive you. He'll welcome you back. He'll love you through it. He'll set your feet up on solid ground. And Lord, for the rest of this uh, beautiful, wonderful group of citizens of the kingdom, would you bless them and would you encourage them as they take the Lord's Supper, give them fresh spiritual sustenance for the days and weeks ahead, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.